Well, I've been in a series entitled Questions by Jesus. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at what is written in the law. Actually, it was a mini three-week series in this bigger series about the authority of God's Word and Jesus' amazing, positive attitude towards the Word of God, and we should have the same thing. Last week, we talked about where to buy bread, the feeding of the 5,000, and bringing our resources to Jesus instead of using them selfishly on ourselves, but first and foremost saying, Lord, how can you use my resources? my time, my talents, and my treasures to further your kingdom. Today, the question is this, which proved to be a neighbor? Jesus asked a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, and it's kind of a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. We're going to look at it again, but the next question that Jesus asks the lawyer, and uh, with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Luke chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, page 869 in your chair Bibles. Now, if you look at that passage, verse 25 is the passage we looked at a few weeks ago. The lawyer came to Jesus and said, Hey, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What is written in the law? What does the Bible say? Which is a great response, right? Every problem, what does the Word of God say? Every question, those big questions of life, what does the Word of God say? Great way to approach life. Because in the Word of God, we have God's plan for our lives. And he, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the Lord said to him, you've answered correctly. Ding, 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 you win. Do this and you will live. Then the lawyer went on. This is the passage we're looking at today. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, what does that mean? To make himself look good, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It was more of a interpretive question. Okay, Jesus, I get that. Uh, love God and love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? Uh, expound on that a little bit. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about a 17-mile trip. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man on the side of the road, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. A denarius was a day's wage, so two days' wages worth, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That's commitment, amen? Hey, if this guy runs up the room service bill, I'll pay it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Here's the bottom line of our talk today. Real faith in Christ values people the way God values them and demonstrates compassion to those people who are in need around us. How does God value people around us? Enough that Jesus would come and lay down his life for us on the cross. Enough that we realize we have been created by an awesome God not the product of random mutations over billions of years, but created by this awesome God who made this planet on which we live. And he loves us. And Jesus 
demands from us that same kind of compassion as we look at the needs of others. This journey that the man was taken, taking, like I said, was from the city of Jerusalem, there you see it on the map, to the city of Jericho, a 17-mile journey. Now, Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet above sea level. Jericho, about 800. So it's a road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And even though Jericho is a little bit more north than Jerusalem, the reason why the Bible says he went down to Jericho was because you're descending on this path, and it's a very dangerous road. In fact, the Jews referred to it as the road of blood. The nickname they gave it was the Red Road. Why? Very dangerous. Robbers and thieves would often attack people and kill them or leave them for dead as they did this man in this story that Jesus was telling them. Now, obviously, this is a parable. Could have been true. We don't know. But a parable, were these stories that Jesus gave in parables were stories that have an underlying important spiritual meaning. And this does as well. Here's the first thing I want you to remember. It's this. Compassion flows out of a right relationship with God. See, the lawyer asked, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the law say? What does the Bible say? Hey, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer passes over the first great commandment, goes right to the second as if he'd already fulfilled the first. Oh, then who then is my neighbor? Wait a minute, let's address your heart for God. Where's your heart at? That's why the Bible says to justify himself. He already felt like he fulfilled the first. Hey, I just struggle with who's my neighbor. I believe the lawyer made three mistakes. It was this. Mistake number one, believing he had fulfilled the first commandment and seeking to justify himself on the second. I've already done the first. I, I love God. That's not a problem. But I don't know who my neighbor is. Here's the second mistake I think the lawyer made believing he could fulfill the command to love God without rightly loving his neighbor. If you think you've already fulfilled it, but you don't even know who your neighbor is, you're not getting it. Here's the third mistake. Believing he could greatly limit the definition of neighbor. My thought is, he was hoping Jesus would say, you know what, love God and the people who live right next door to you. If they have needs, that's your neighbor. Jesus greatly expands the definition of neighbor in this amazing story. And it really comes out of our love for God. If you want to love people the way God wants you to, you have to start with this connection you have with God and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, it's so easy for us to, to think about our own needs, right? We like to put our own needs above the needs of others. The Bible tells us to do just the opposite, but it's really hard. In our flesh, we want to look out for ourselves. This happened to me Friday night. I came home Friday night. My, my wife and I went out. Came home about 11. I was so tired. We had a men's ministry planning meeting the next morning, Saturday, yesterday, at 7.30 in the morning. I was so ready to get some sleep. I was tired at 11 o'clock. I get home. I walk in. Brady tells us that Caden is in the bathtub with his foot in the bathtub because he was stung by a stingray doing night surfing in the ocean. I'm like, night? who told him he could go do night surfing? We walk into the bathroom. The, the, the tub is filled with hot water, and it's a reddish brown, all of it. I'm like, Caden, how much blood have you lost? That's like totally bloody. Blood all over the floor. Way to go, Caden. <laughs> Sitting right there. 
My wife's like, we got to take him to the emergency room. We pulled it out. The blood is gushing out of his foot, the top of his foot. The stingray stung him right on the top of his foot. I'm like, you know, put a Band-Aid on it. He'll be fine. Let's put a Band-Aid on it. I'm going to bed. Well, you got to take him to the emergency room. I said, it's 11 o'clock. He'll be fine in three or four months. He'll be okay. Apparently, all this venom that they stick into your foot started to radiate up his leg. I'm like, all right, let's go. So fortunately, for the next three and a half hours, we were in the emergency room with doctors and nurses that cared more about him than I did. And they stitched it up, and he's better now, playing in the worship team. Thank you so much. But at that moment, I didn't want to help my own son. I wanted to go to bed. I was so exhausted. We all have those moments when we look out for ourselves more than others. And God wants us to rise above that. Amen. God wants us to say, you know what? I got to see the needs of others as being more important than my own. It comes out of a relationship you have with God. Think of the Ten Commandments. Those ten amazing commandments that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. The first four deal with our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. Those four are these. You shall have no other gods before me. God's like, in my sight, I don't want anything that you love more than me. No carved images, that's commandment number, number two. No idols that you're worshiping. Nothing in your possession that you love more than me. Nothing should come close. You're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And I think in this OMG culture, where everything is OMG, we're to have a, a bit more respect for the name of God than that. And the fourth one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, as you know, my son and I were talking about this last week as well. He said, Dad, what about the Sabbath? You know, it's Saturday. Why do we meet on Sunday? What's the reason for why we meet on Sunday here as a church? Yeah, we, we celebrate like the early church did the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So the early church was meeting on the first day of the week. We do as well. Not that you can't meet on Saturday, but the Sabbath principle is this. Make time in your schedule to worship God. That's the principle. Don't be so busy with activities and work and, and responsibilities that you have that you have no time to worship God. If you are a person that has no time to worship God, your life is out of balance, you need to change. If you are a follower of Christ, what we need to have is times in those moments when we rest in His presence and we abide in Christ and live in Him and make time to worship Him instead of pushing him out of our schedule, which we can so easily do. See, that's the foundation of our lives, that vertical relationship. And if you have that, if you're focused on that, that will change your horizontal. The next six commandments deal with your horizontal relationship with others. What are they? What are those commandments? Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. See, if you really love God, then God fills you with this amazing love that can only come from Him, this unconditional love that doesn't say, I'll love you if. It doesn't say, I'll love you when. You scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours kind of love. That's a conditional love. That's the love of this world. But what Jesus demonstrated to us is this unconditional love. Like Romans 5 says, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we weren't in love with Christ. We weren't worshiping him. But he still went to the cross and died for you unconditionally with the hope that you would see this God that created you 
and the amazing love he has for you that he would go all the way to the cross. See, here's our challenge. If you really want to love others, be sure you love God. You might say, well, I, lo I love God. I've, I've, I've said, I said it 20 years ago to God that I loved him. I want to ask you this. On a regular basis, do you say to the Lord, Lord, I love you? And you get up in the morning, God, thank you for this new day. I love you. God, I love you. Now, our goal will always be to love God with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our might, all, all, with, all that is within us. We're, we're never perfectly there. But to have this desire to love God more each and every day, and from that love will come a love to love others. It comes out of that right relationship with God. That's the principle we find in this passage, 1 John chapter 4, which tells us that if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. The Bible does not mince words. If you say you love God, but you hate people around you, you're a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother as well, not the way the world loves. We're not to love conditionally. Riverview Church, everyone that comes through these doors, we're to see them as a person that God died for on the cross. We're to see them as a person that God loves, just like this good Samaritan. He saw a Jew lying on the side of the road. And he knew that Jews hated Samaritans. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But he still went out of his way to love this person who was in need. That brings me to the second point. It's this. Compassion responds to need, not the perceived worth. See, the priest comes by, and the priests in the Hebrew culture were professional clergy. They received their livelihood from being a priest. They're the ones that entered the temple. Uh, so once, once a year, a priest would be asked to enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They were important people and knew God's law. When Jesus told the story, I'm sure the people hearing the story thought, oh, what a wonderful coincidence. A priest comes by. That priest will surely, surely help this man that's lying half dead on the road, but he doesn't. He goes on the other side. Levites, same thing. As you might know, God selected one tribe, the tribe of Levi, to aid in the worship of, that, that Israel would give to God. They were the lay leaders. They weren't professionals, most of them. They were lay leaders in the nation of Israel from the tribe of Levi. They're called Levites, not Levi's, by the way, not Levi's, even though there is something very special about their genes. They're called Levites. Levites. They were the ones leading the nation of Israel in worship. He should have known better. He walks on the other side. Then Jesus says a Samaritan person comes by. And the crowd probably thought who was hearing this, oh, we know exactly what the Samaritan is going to do. He's going to walk by because he knows that Jew hates him. Why does the Jew hate him? Samaritans were the resulting group from what happened in 722 B.C., 700 years before Christ, Assyria came down and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, scattering most of the Jews, killing thousands, leaving some in the northern parts of Israel, but most were scattered. And then Assyria took people from other countries they had conquered and brought them into the northern region of Israel. Why? So they couldn't rebuild. 
to keep the nation of Israel from restoring itself. And the resulting group from that mix of people were the Samaritans. And they were hated by the Jews. They shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be in our country. They don't believe like we do. We hate them. In fact, when people, Jews, would travel from the southern region of Judea to the northern region of Galilee, they would often not go through Samaria because Samaritans lived there, and they would go around the region of Samaria. That's how much they hated them, and Samaritans knew it. This good Samaritan had every reason to walk on by, but he doesn't. In spite of the hatred that was there, in spite of the social barrier, this Samaritan stops and helps this Jew lying half dead on the side of the road. He didn't ask this question, hey, what's in it for me? That wasn't his concern. He cares for the man, puts him on his animal, brings him to an inn, takes care of him. The next day pays the innkeeper to do the same. Sacrifices for this man. Different attitudes displayed in this story. See, in this story, the the robbers have one attitude. Their attitude is this. What's yours is mine. I'm taking it. And believe me, it's a very common attitude in the world today. There are many people, they may not say it out loud, but they would love to take what you have. They would love, ha- love to somehow get what you have. They would love that. Another attitude that we see in this story is that of the priest and the Levite. Hey, what's mine is mine. I'm keeping it. I'm not going to help this guy on the side of the road. And by the way, this is a dangerous place to be. The, the thieves and robbers might still be up on the hills waiting to attack me. I'm going home. I'm going to the safety of my agenda. Samaritan Idol show is on tonight. And then right after that, Samaritan Ninja Warrior. I'm not missing that. I've got a busy schedule. What's mine is mine. What the Lord loves is the attitude of the Samaritan. The Samaritan's attitude is this. What's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to pay your bill. I'm going to make sure you're cared for and do what I can to meet your need. That kind of attitude in all of us, and I need to up mine. I need to grow in this area myself. To have my sensitivity more in tune to the needs of others around me. Because there are moments when I'm so into meeting my needs that I forget that there are those around me that need the gifts and resources that I can use to meet their needs and demonstrate the love of Christ. It's so powerful. That's what will make a church so radically different from that of the world. When people see in us a love that they cannot see in the world, a community of people like us who are into encouraging and building up those around us who are going through difficult circumstances in their lives. See, that's what Jesus praises in this story. This good Samaritan had every reason not to help this man, but overcomes that and makes a difference in this man's life who is left for dead. Here's the third thing I want you to remember. Compassion demands a tangible commitment to action. You know, it says here, in the text, go back to the text. I know time is fleeting, right? We got we get back to the text. It says this: the man had compassion on him. Compassion is an important quality. Do you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Sympathy is a word that says, in essence, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you, and it's kind of from a distance. 
I really feel sympathetic to those people over there with those needs. There's another word like it that sounds like it, but it's radically different. It's the word what? Anybody know? Empathy, right? Empathy identifies with the problems of others. Empathy implies action. That's exactly what the word in the Greek here is like when he uses this word compassion. It was an attitude that demanded a response. Demanded a response. See, the book of James, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We don't have much time, but James says this in James chapter 2. It says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? If you have faith but you don't put it into action, what good is that? That's not real faith. We've said here many times, a faith that saves you is a faith that what you? Changes you. You put it into action. If you sense your faith is changing you, that's the faith that will save you, right? He says, can that faith save him? If you say, I believe in God, but there's no change in your life, that faith can't save you. But if you believe in God and know exactly why he came to the cross, it changes you from the inside out. You want to be like Jesus. You want to be changed. You want to give up your old loser agenda that's totally wrong. And you want to adopt the agenda of God because he made you and created you. And he says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so you encounter somebody who doesn't have any, the right clothes, they don't have enough food to eat, and your response is, go in peace, be warm and filled, you'll be fine. He says this, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I define compassion as this deep awareness of the suffering of another coupled with actions to relieve that suffering. You might say, well, Mel, sometimes I meet people and the need is just too big. See, that's why we have a church. Because there are many times I, I find someone in need. I can't meet the need by myself, but we have amazing people in the church who have a gift in this area and a gift in that area, and you've given generously to a thing called our benevolence ministry. And behind the scenes, I don't know if you know this, but there are people who meet with people with financial needs to help them because of money you've given. See, we have a team of people here that can meet needs that truly demonstrate the love of Christ in tangible ways. What good is it if we're a church that says we love God but make no difference in the lives of people who are in need? Jesus highlights the Good Samaritan as a person who drops his agenda, drops his resources, and gives to someone else. You know, the reason why you're so valuable in God's eyes is because when God created you, when he created Adam and Eve, the beginning of the human race, God said he stamped his image upon them. That sets you apart from every other animal on the planet. No other animal has the image of God stamped on him or her. It, it, it doesn't happen. There's no image of God in animals. It's not there. The image of God is in you. And that's what makes it so sad for me when I hear of our young people being taught about atheistic evolution and all the things that result from that. We hear a lot of talk about racism today, right? And the attitudes of some towards others, and they look down on others. We often don't realize this, but even atheistic evolutionists have acknowledged that because of the fact we've divorced the human race from its creator, racism has only increased. Stephen Jay Gould, a, a prof at Harvard, an atheist, an evolutionist, said this, 
Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, around the time of Darwin. But they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Why so much division? Because we forget the biblical principle that every person, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their features, their hair color, every person equal in value in God's eyes, created in the image of God. We forget that. As a result of evolutionary thinking, aborigines, you may have read about this. I certainly have in a number of articles. Aborigines were seen as the missing link in evolutionary theory according to Darwin and others. And in the late 1800s, scientists traveled to Australia to kill and desecrate thousands of aborigines who were considered a lower form of evolution than the higher form that we know of today in humans. All in the name of research. Thousands of them killed. When if they'd read the word of God, they would have known these people are created in the image of God. They have value in God's eyes. In fact, evolutionists have come to realize that all of us on this planet, every one of us, has descended from one human mother. They're not God believers. They've done genetic samplings of people groups all around the world, and they have determined that everyone on the planet, regardless of their skin color or features, have all descended from one human mother. In fact, they refer to her. Here, here's a picture on the cover of Newsweek. They refer to her as mitochondrial Eve. As a tongue-in-cheek reference to the Bible, but they certainly don't acknowledge the biblical account like they should, and we know to be true, that God created Adam and Eve, and every person on the planet has descended from them. See, the human race is all descended, they concluded, from one human mother. 99.8% of your genetic code is the same as the person next to you. 99.8 features like skin color th that's determined in 0.012% of your genetic code that's where you're a little bit different than someone else but 99.988% of our genetic code is the same as the person sitting right next to you we're all descended from God's amazing creation we're all people that have the image of God stamped on them. And God went all the way to the cross to redeem every person on this planet. That's why when I, when I, I fill out these forms, you know, they ask, what's your ethnic race? What's your race? And they have Caucasian, Hispanic, uh, African-American. I just put human on it. I write human over it. There's one race, human race. Yes, there's different people groups, but there's one race according to God's word, created in the image of God, 99.988% similar. But we love to divide our, our world when God wants to unite us. You know, uh, my challenge in, for me in my life as a pastor is to be like this good Samaritan sees the needs of others and knowing that in meeting the needs of others we can represent the love of God in a powerful way. You know, that's why the Bible says that all your good works, right, are like filthy rags. People have said to me, that's terrible. I mean, it's great people are doing good works. Why does the Bible say all of our good works are like filthy rags? Because bottom line, the chief purpose that you are here on this earth for, the chief purpose for you to fulfill and I love how the Westminster Confession puts it. It says, the chief end of humans 
is to glorify God and anybody know the rest next sentence? And enjoy him forever. The next phrase says, and enjoy him forever. Your reason for being on this planet is to glorify God. Why does God need the glory? No. But it raises the level of our existence here on this earth that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And the reason why our good works are like filthy rags is because people who don't know God are doing all those good works for the wrong reason. They're not doing it to glorify God. They're not doing it to glorify Him. But everything that we do here at Riverview Church, we need to do to glorify God. Every good deed we commit, every house we build, every action that meets the needs of others is designed to point people to the God who left heaven and died on the cross for us to set us free. May we be a church like that. No matter what the skin color is, no matter what the background is, we are all created by God. And if someone wrongs you, don't hate them, but realize they are deceived by the evil one. And like Jesus says, you pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you because they're being deceived. That's what makes the church so radically different. That's what makes our fellowship something that unbelievers, when they really experience, will say, I want to be a part of something like that because these people are different than the world. In our church, so many ways in which we can help those who are poor. Let me just give you a list. Loft House number 73. We have food drives for the food pantries. We have compassion children that we're supporting. Bread of Life Homeless Ministry that we are involved with as a church. Benevolence ministry, people that meet to help meet the emergency financial needs of others. Operation Christmas Child, Angel Tree, White Rainbow, Mexico Outreach. We're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner this year, for, especially for those who don't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving. But even beyond what's happening in the church, what makes it so powerful is God sending you out into a world that needs the love of Christ. He has you at a workplace or a school or at the base, wherever it might be for a reason to demonstrate the love of Jesus. Because these people that you encounter, these people in your path are people God has placed there for you to show the love of Christ, that you are radically different than the world. That leads me to the last point is this, and we're going to close. Compassion involves a willingness to sacrifice for others just like this good Samaritan did. I'm going to sacrifice for this man I don't even know. He probably hates me, but I'm going to help him. So as he closed, let's look at this list. This now what? For Christ, be willing to be actively compassionate. For Christ, be willing to cross social barriers regardless of what critics say. Be willing to set aside a meistic, self-centered lifestyle. And for Christ, be willing to selflessly network with others in church. If a need is too big for you, it's too big. Network with others. Network with others. There are resources and gifts in this place to help meet those needs. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. And as your heads are bowed today, maybe right now is a great, great time to say, God, I love you. God, I love you. Help me to increase my love for you, Jesus. Because if I love you, that's going to change the way I do marriage. It's going to change the way I do family. It's going to change the way I love people around me and strangers that I meet. And Lord, I pray that this church would be filled with your love. Thank you for so many here that have encouraged me and built me up and strengthened me when I have felt down and discouraged. I pray, God, this will be a place in which your love is powerfully demonstrated, that this fellowship that we have with one another it's fed by our relationship with you 
And God, may we take the example that Jesus gave us of this good Samaritan and apply it to our own lives in ways that no one may ever see. But it's all about glorifying you, Jesus. We love you today. You've changed our lives. You've changed our eternities. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Let's all stand together and sing I'll Fly Away again. So we've elders up front, food outside on the patio, and live this week all for him. God bless you. See you on the patio. Ladies, don't forget to sign up for the retreat.